Amen. If you want to sign up to serve on our scripture reading team, we're looking for people. There was just a few names in there. Uh, Craig, you nailed it. You did a great job. Uh, but man, what a joy it is to, to be here with you this morning. I'm excited to see what God might have for us with Judges. My prayer all week is that the, the Lord would draw near to us, that he would lead us. Judges is not a fun uh, story, as you'll see over the next 20, 21 weeks. Of, it's just not full of a lot of just bright, shiny things, uh, but nor, I think if we were all honest, nor are our lives just shi- uh, shining forth with all sorts of bright things. Uh, we wrestle with sin and suffering and shame and guilt and all the things. So this morning, as we kick off Judges, my prayer is that uh, the Lord would draw near to you. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this, but left to my own doing, I can really mess some things up. Who would relate to that? Like, who would just be honest and say, yeah, left to my own doing, I can really mess some things up. For me, it usually comes with furniture from Ikea, right? Anybody, any man man in here that has uh, gone to Ikea with their bride and picked out this furniture and you get the home, you get home and the box has exactly what, this beautiful picture of what it's supposed to look like. Uh, you see the picture, you open it up, the box, and there's like 17 boxes inside of one box. And then there's 457 parts uh, that all go to this one little nightstand. You're thinking, my goodness, this is a 16-inch nightstand. What, why do I need 457 parts? And then you get to the instructions. 72 pages for one little nightstand. Can anybody relate to this? Like, left to my own doing, I can really mess some things up, especially furniture. Now, as funny and and as small of an example that is, I think it's the same thing for our lives. I know I can look at the bigger area, bigger areas of my life, whether that be finances, how I spend my time, how I parent, my relationships, my friendships, And if I'm not careful, left to my own doing, I can really mess those things up as well. And as a Christian, if if that's you here this morning, I know, we know, that we're supposed to be all in on following Jesus. Like you hear this and, and you're like, yes, to be a Christian, all in, trust him, follow him, go where he leads, trust him with everything that we have. But the reality, however, is there have been plenty of times, now I'll speak back to to just me. I don't want to project my failures onto you. I think we're all here. But just for me, there's been plenty of times where I've half-heartedly followed after him. Meaning, I see where he's leading. see the box, the picture. I know where I'm headed. Like, I just want to get there. I just want to skip the 52 directions that I'm supposed to, or 52 pages of instructions. Like, I know where we're headed. I know what he's asking me to do. I believe sometimes that I can even do it faster and better than him. But it's not always the easiest that he asks us to do. And so what do I do? In my life, I compromise. I convince myself that I can do things better than God. I find the easier route, the shortest way from A to B, or A to, what's the line? The shortest way from, it doesn't matter. There's a, my coach used to always say that, like the shortest I'm going to butcher it. It doesn't matter. We find the easier route. We can rationalize our decisions based on our feelings or even our circumstances. God, I know you're wanting me to go this direction. Like, I get that. I see that. It's clear. I mean, I just don't feel like that's the best way. Or you look around and you're like, man, that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And then there's times in my life 
where I've not even done that. I've just said yes to the Lord out loud, like, God, I'm going to follow you. And then I've turned and walked the opposite direction, believing that my way was better. I got voice to him. I trust you, Lord, with everything I have. And then I look, except for that, and I go this way. I've justified those actions. I've made the claim that I have followed the Lord, knowing good and well that in my heart I never fully submitted. I never fully followed the exact path that God was leading me on. Just because I might know where he's leading me. Just because I might know just enough to get by. Think back to that Ikea example. See the picture? I know that this screw goes right here. There's only one place for it to do, to go. Just because I see that and I know enough to get by, just because I know that he loves me, whether or not my intent is good or bad, it doesn't justify how I get there. Why? Because how we get there matters. I think... I think we would all agree how we get there matters. And when we don't think it does, when we say we're all in to the Lord and do a different thing, then that's half-hearted discipleship, which is sin that we're going to see. The Bible's clear that that's actually sin. And sin, as I say all the time, leads us to death. And along the way, I believe we as Christians do the same thing. Like, we're really good at minimizing sin. We can justify our way out of anything. We can conceal that sin. We can hide it, whatever it may be. But when we do that, we're creating a mess within our own lives. It doesn't just affect us. It's this cascading waterfall that affects everything around us. And when we do that, the name of Christ is actually stained. We're saying, I trust you, Jesus, except for this, and I'm going to go this way. What the world sees is, well, why should I even do that? I know I can get there better. Why even proclaim that I'm a Christian? Why even do that? The end never justifies the means for Christ's followers. So what happens? What happens when we live our lives in such a way that moves us from delighting in all of him. Yes, Lord, we're in. A life where we know, not just in our mind, but now we believe it in our heart. And then faith with action. Like what happens where we know and believe and hope and trust and love and obey God to now living a life where we do what is right in our own eyes? Like what happens to that over time? We're all in, and then over time we leave the door cracked, and before long... We wake up and we're doing what's right in our own eyes. You know, the book of Judges lays this out for us. As we walk through this book, we're going to see over and over again what it looks like to walk a life of half-hearted discipleship, which we know is not the call. If you've been around for a little bit, you understand when we were in Ephesians, what does Paul say? Tells us what does it mean to walk worthy of the calling that Christ has given us, that we've been united to Christ Judges is kind of going to kind of show us a different picture of what it looks like. What's the consequences of living a life with a divided heart? It's a story that over and over again we're going to see warns us of this foolishness and suffering that a lifestyle like this will reveal and how it's always going to lead us to, to sin, to death, to a dark place where we're all doing what is right in our own eyes. 
And yet, in the middle of this story, we still get a glimpse at the heart of the Father. Israelites, we're going to see over and over again, yes, I will follow you to over and over again, the cyclical pattern. God, help us, redeem us. God pulls them out. We love you, Lord. Walks in their own way, and it gets worse and worse, and yet, God, we still see the the heart of the Father full of mercy and grace, one who, despite all of their sin and suffering that they brought onto themselves, despite all of their constant resistance, pushing away, all of their misconduct that, again, they bring on themselves, what does God do? The Father continues to lavish His grace and His mercy on their lives. He continues to fulfill His promise all the way back in Genesis. For His glory and for their good, even when their hearts are divided, He's still faithful still loving, and still pursues. Tim Keller says it beautifully about the book of Judges. He says, the book of Judges teaches its readers in every age that the darker the human heart, the more brilliant the light of of God's grace. The darker the human heart, the more brilliant the light of God's grace. I believe that Judges will be a story that helps helps us see how God wants all of our lives, not just part of them. He wants all of it. Things unseen, our thoughts, our actions, how we invest our our time, money, resources, energy, how we parent, he wants all of it. For his glory, he gets glory from taking broken people and then his glory spreads when the world says, man, that broken, busted people like Trin and like Matt and like Cody, look at how they live their life. There's something different about them. He's asking for all of their lives. So, let's dig in. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I've handed the land over to him. Verse 3, Judah said to his brother Simeon, come with me to my allotted territory and let's fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your allotted territory. So Simeon went with him. Now the book opens with a defining moment for the people of God. Their leader, it says, Joshua has just passed away. Like what a defining moment. Okay, I'm going I'm to walk through this, but their, their leader had just passed away. So many good things had taken place up to this point. A lot of progress, the people of God, a lot of confidence built up in the the Lord, his provision for his people. And now what happens? Judges chapter 1, verse 1, their leader has passed away. Things have changed, and it's a defining moment for all of them. Here's what I mean for for context here. From Genesis until now, we see this storyline that has been driven from the promise of God, from God to Abraham, that God's people... From the beginning, God's people would be witness to the glory of God through the way they live their life in the land God would provide. Right? It's been quite a journey for them all. They spent over 400 years in captivity, slaves to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and yet God remains faithful, provides and meets their every need. He continues to fill his promise. It's in Exodus where we see God raise up an incredible man of faith named Moses, Through Moses, God miraculously delivers the Israelites from the Egyptians. Even though they still wandered as nomads as they awaited this promised land, God was still faithful. He was still their provider. 
in this wandering, in this wilderness, it's here that they're given the law to live by, the Ten Commandments. They're construct, they constructed a tabernacle, all right, where they can meet with the Lord, sacrifice. They could give sacrifices in order to receive forgiveness from the Lord. And after many years, this great leader, Moses, dies and another leader steps in, another character in this story. Remember, Judges is a narrative, so I'm preaching a story uh, this is a story within one big story from Genesis to Revelation. Cover to cover, it's one story that all points to Jesus. We'll see that every week. This happens to be one snippet, and I'm, I'm catching you up to speed, if you will. So now, next character, Moses passes away, hands it off to Joshua. Through the power and faithfulness of God, Joshua leads them out of the desert. Moses told them of the promised land, hey, God's faithful, he's going to provide. Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by the day. God is going to provide. He's faithful. Joshua leads them from the desert, now actually ready to step foot into the promised land. But there's a problem. All right, again, story, giving you characters. Now here's the problem. Since the Israelites were gone for so long from their land, there's another group of people. The Canaanites. They had taken over the land. Moses gets them there. Joshua is ready to take the land, but it's full of the Canaanites. And they had gotten very comfortable. They weren't just like passing through. The Canaanites had established their land. Matter of fact, they were very well established. They had a strong and technically advanced military. We're going to see here at the end of chapter 1. But they also worshipped all sorts of God. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, was not in their vocabulary. They didn't plan on leaving anytime soon. Now, I'd want to make mention of this really quick. Some of, some of you might not think about this, but others of us might have this question, how? Like, how can God let this happen? But here's the deal. God made a promise, and that promise was for his people that they would dwell in his presence. So God's people dwelling with his presence in a specific place, being the promised land, the Israelites in the promised land. And here they are ready to take the land, but it's full of another group, another people group, if you will. We're going to see some dark things play out. Already in chapter 1, toes and fingers cut off, we're going to see some dark things take place. And as they begin to take the land, you might think, how could God, in all of his love, allow this to happen? How can they take this land? The Canaanites were there. But understand this, this was never about vengeance or race or some sweet spot to like set up shop for the Israelites. This has always been about a promise that God will fulfill. All of his promises are yes and amen, and this particular land was set aside, designated, promised to his people where his presence would be in this particular place, but the Canaanites were there. So as long as there are other people who occupy the land and worship other gods, that promise can't be fulfilled. So I don't want you to get a, a wrong view of how could God let this happen. Remember, from time beginning, it was God. He made this promise, and he will always come through on his promise. So it's in his sovereign plan, in his providence, that the Israelites, we're going to see, will begin to push those people out who do not give praise and glory and honor to the God of the Bible, Yahweh. just want to set the bar there. Because this could get a little weird where you're like, man, how, how can this be happening? It's never been about race or vengeance. It's always been about his plan and his promise. So up until this point, the people of God, 
kind of walked you through. They've been pretty obedient. They've trusted the Lord. They've followed after the Lord. Men like Moses leading them and, and Joshua leading them. A lot of that has to do with the leader that God would raise up among them. And in this case, right before Joshua passes, he calls everyone together. He kind of gives this little farewell speech. He knows time is coming to an end. He's old age. He basically says this, hey, I'm old, and I've seen, I know that we've all seen what God can do. I'm paraphrasing. This is not a Bible translation. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what we see in the Word. I'm old. We've seen all that God has done. He's the one that's been fighting for you. The promised land is here. He's giving it all to you, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Don't forget. Let him fight for you just like he always has. Be very strong. Continue to do all that is written in the book. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left. Don't associate with any other nation that's left in your way. Don't call on the names of their gods. Don't make an oath to any of them. Don't serve them. Don't bow down to them. Be loyal to your God. Fear him and worship him in sincerity and truth. And then Joshua passes away. He's basically saying, trust God. Be all in. Do not have a divided heart. Go all in on following the one who's always provided for us. But what we see, their world is rocked. For generations, they've been waiting for this moment. Now their faithful leader has passed, the one who led them with courage and faith, the one who they all trusted because of how Joshua trusted God, because Joshua was all in on following after God. And that type of faith is contagious. Because in their time of need, they had seen Joshua do what? Not turn to his own strength, but turn over and over again would turn back to God. God, where are you? What do, what do I need to do? I'm here. I'm available. I'm all in. Fully devoted. So they had seen that. They had witnessed that. And what we see here is exactly what Joshua had taught them to do. Verse 1, they sought the Lord. They inquired of the Lord. Some of y'all are like, man, there's 20 verses and he's still on verse 1. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I'm just trying to get us to see, like, what a legacy to leave. Up against, between a rock and a hard place, what do we do? Well, what would Joshua always do? What did Moses always do? Lord, we're here. I'm all in. What would you have for us? They inquired of the Lord. What a legacy to leave. To leave fully devoted to following God. Just throw this out there real quick for you to kind of chew on. What's the legacy you're living, leaving behind? Is it one where you have to have all the answers? Your kids look at you and they're like, my gosh, they always have all the answers and no matter what, I'm just supposed to, I'm just supposed to do this or is it one that says, hey, you know what? That's a really hard question. Let's ask the Lord. Let's see, let's see what the Lord has for us. Moving, jobs, finances? What's the legacy that you're leaving behind? Now they ask, and once again we see his faithfulness to his children. God responds. He says, Judah is your guy. I've handed the land over to him. Now this is where the story pivots. Okay, so Judges kicks off a whole new chapter within the storyline of the Bible. I told you that up until this point from Genesis, mostly the children of God, yes, lots of grumbling, lots of frustration, but mostly 
They've had a leader that said, hey, remember, 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 remember. God is faithful. He is somebody that we can bank on. He is trustworthy. All of his promises are yes and amen. And now the story pivots. God is still God, never changing, always faithful. But let's see what happens left to their own doing. They really start to mess some things up. How do I know that? Their hearts are divided. Like, I hear what God says, but I'm going to go this way. Watch. I mean, up front. Look at it with me. Judah hears God's response. Judah's our guy. I'm going to give him over. I'm going to give all the land over to Judah. And Judah says, okay. And then look what happens. A bit skeptical? Probably a little unsure. Doubting God's decision And it's right here that he says to Simeon, hey, bro, you went in on this? I'm not for sure I can do this. Like, I don't know what that conversation looked like, but God said, I've asked Judah. Judah says, okay, and then turns and says, hey, you want to come with me? Because I need some help. This cracks the door open. This may not seem like much. We're on this side of the narrative. Like, I can tell you it's a lot because we're going to walk through. But this cracks the door open immediately for a lot of what's called half-hearted discipleship. Yeah, I trust you, Lord, but I'm going to do this my way. We're going to see this pattern over and over and over again all throughout the story. And it's only going to get worse. As time goes on, they get further and further and further from the Lord. But nonetheless, here we are. They go to battle. God remains faithful. First up. We see Adonai Bezek, Judah attacks, and it says, the Lord handed them over to Judah. So even in the midst of that, you're like, man, that's kind of harsh. How can he say that's half-hearted discipleship? He said, Judah, go. Judah brings Simeon. Even in the midst of it, God's faithful. He hands them over to Judah. So they capture. They ultimately put to death all of them, but not Adonai Bezek because he tries to flee the scene, which leads to them cutting off his fingers and toes. Now, to be clear... Um, this is terrible treatment in today's context, right? Like you just, you wouldn't see this in today's, you would in some places. Be, be careful. You, you would see this. In our form of military, you would not see this. It's terrible treatment. But at this point in, in history, even Adonai Bezek seemed to know what was coming. What does he say? God's repaid me for what I've done. The God of the Bibles repaid me for what I've done. Like, even in his worship and bowing down to other gods, he sits here and he says, yeah, I'm, he's repaying me for what I've done. He knew his fate, that God would eventually give him over to the wickedness of his own heart, for he treated, if you read on, he actually treated 70 kings like this, did the same thing to them, treated them like dogs, gave them scraps underneath the table. Having won this victory... We turn, Judah continues to take their inheritance. They went down to fight in the hill country. Kind of follow along with me if you want. The Judean foothills. They fought and captured Hebron. Shishai, man, Craig, you you really did did great on these words. Hebron, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. They marched against the people of Debir, struck down the Canaanites living in Zephath and Gaza, as well as Ashkelon and Ekron. If you just go fast enough, nobody really knows if you're messing it up. And in the middle of these victories, we see the narrator focus on a faithful family. 
by a man named Caleb. Now, I want to make mention of this because I find it interesting that the narrator, in all of this, he could have just skipped over this. But the narrator gives us a glimpse into this account. And if it's in the Word of God, it's important and for us to understand. Though he's an old man at this point, Caleb is a faithful and fully devoted man who's following after God. Now, catch this. He's not even an Israelite. That's huge. A few books earlier, in Numbers, Caleb stands in faith alongside two men known as Moses and Joshua. And this man sees the faith of these men and is drawn to the Yahweh of the Bible and all of his power, and the Lord honors this man for this. Listen to what it says in Joshua 14. The descendants of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jeph, man, Jephunneh and Kenzite, said to him, You know what the Lord promised Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me? I was 40 years old when Moses, the Lord's servant, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to scout the land, and I brought back an honest report. My brothers who went with me caused the people to lose heart. So this is, this is Caleb, a faithful man, not an Israelite, who actually did the work of the Lord, was invited into this plan. He says, but I followed the Lord my God completely. As a spy, he went in and followed the Lord. On that day, Moses swore to me, the land where you have set foot will be an inheritance for you and your descendants forever because you have followed the Lord my God completely. Not even an Israelite. Taste and see that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is good and follows him. Moses and Joshua actually promised Caleb a section of land for his family within Judah. So now all these years pass. It was years ago. All these years pass, and in his old age, he still remains faithful. He still followed the Lord God completely. What might seem odd to add into this narrative is actually a beautiful picture of a faithful family who displays real radical faith, which should be, interestingly enough, what the Israelites are doing, God's chosen people. And yet it's Caleb, courageous obedience in response to God's promises. Look at verse 11. From there they marched against the residents of the beer. Caleb said, whoever attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer, I will give my daughter Axal to him as a wife. So Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, captured it. And Caleb gave his daughter Axal to him and his wife as his wife. When she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. As she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, hey, what do you want? His daughter answered him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in Negev, give me springs also. So Caleb gave her both the upper and lower springs. So Caleb says, you should track with me on this story. Hey, I'm old. I want this land. It was promised. The Lord's faithful. Can somebody help me fight this battle for me? And whoever does, I'm going to give you my daughter. Because I stand on the promise of God. He is faithful. So hear me on this. Caleb doesn't offer his daughter in a sense that is offensive. He doesn't view her as property. Instead, what he actually wants, this faithful non-Israelite man, what he wants that God has promised him and he has continued to remain faithful is that his daughter, Axel, would live a life and legacy that God had promised for him. 
That's what he wants. Would somebody help me enter into this promised land? And in doing so, Othniel steps forward and he wins his bride. She tells her new husband, hey, can you ask for some of this blessing from my father? But Caleb actually beats her to it. She gets off the donkey, he being a faithful man of God who loves his family and treasures all that God had promised to give him. What does he do? He actually asks his daughter, hey, what's on your mind? What do you want? And what she is desiring is just some land with some water on it. Like this seems so simple. So Caleb gives her more than he asks. He actually gives her two reservoirs. Why? Because Caleb, again, desires to see God's provision and plan move forward. He's fully devoted to following the promises of God. Now, why do I bring all that up? Because something to consider. An outsider to the Israelites, but faithful to follow the Lord God Yahweh, Caleb and his family are recorded here in a way that honors them forever. Not because of anything they did, but because they were fully devoted to the way of God. They knew his promises were yes and amen. And yet the Israelites, God's God's chosen people, time and time again continue to turn their back on the Father. I love what Tim Keller says here. Just when I use the phrase outsider, can I just remind all of us we were once an outsider? He says this, as will often be the case in this book, as well as among God's people today, it is the unlikely and the outsider, a woman and the Kenites who actually display real radical faith. There's hope for you, brother and sister. There's hope for you, friend, who hasn't quite given their life to Jesus, hasn't been radically saved. There's hope for you. He can take dead hearts Breathe new life into them, and you can be used for the glory of God. Yep. Just like last week, his glory will fill the earth as the water fills the seas. You can, have, you can get in on this. You can get in on this. So as we wrap up this first scene, we see two more examples. This is how I'll close with half-hearted discipleship. Verse 16. Judges 1, verse 16. We see very simply, they've been capturing all these people. Watch this. They went to live among the people. Doesn't seem odd. Seems like maybe they're wanting to make peace with all these people. What was the call? What was the call? What did God ask them to do? It wasn't this. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, one story, keep in mind, God commands Moses what they were to do when they made it to the promised land. Years later, when God delivers them over to you, what does he say? Completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give them your daughters. They went to live among the peoples. They got comfortable with their sin. This half-hearted discipleship will always leave the door cracked for sin to flourish. And we're going to see that play out in a devastating way over the next few chapters, over the entire book, over all of mankind probably even in your own life, when you leave the door cracked for sin, half-hearted discipleship, sin can creep its way in and it will wreak havoc all over your life. Your marriage, your relationships, your children, your work. They get comfortable with sin and sin begins to flourish. And then lastly, verse 17 through 20. Judah went, went, 
again, kept advancing. These are just little nuggets of, of these half-hearted discipleships. Half-hearted discipleship. Judah went, he kept advancing, destroying the towns, capturing their territory. Verse 19, the Lord was with Judah. In the midst of all of this, the Lord was with Judah. And what happens? God enabled them to take possession of the hill country. Man, God is faithful. He is with them. They see this and they said, I see you, God. Followed by this, what happens? They were unable to drive the people from the place because they had iron chariots. Judah is not trusting in the strength of God. Up against all odds, this technical military advances i.e. iron chariots. God says, go. This military seems a bit too advanced for Judah. And so they fail to push them out of the land. Lack of trust in God's provision is at play here. And from this point forward, the Canaanites' presence will haunt them for centuries to come. Generational sin's a thing. powerful thing but the power of God is far mightier and stronger it can break that it can break the chains of any sin that you feel um, condemned to right now that you feel has is overpowering you is overtaking your life slam the door shut to that sin and trust that he is more than enough May we not flirt with sin. I wonder how many of us hear what God's asking of us. Just think about your own life. Like we know he's strong and powerful. We hear that. Probably a lot of us, mm, yeah, he's strong, powerful provider. You realize it's not that we lack in our strength of knowing that. I think it's our lack of faith in his strength. Like you know in your mind that God will, will get you through this. I think it's our lack of faith in his strength. You see, Judah was proud. They had almost done everything right. They conquered as the Lord was with them. But when faced with opposition that required absolute faith in God's strength, what happens? They shrunk back. Their hearts were divided. When we rely on our own strength, when we feel like we know what's best or what makes practical sense to us, then what we come up with is this better solution instead of just obeying don't we all find ourselves making the same compromise in our life right now? Like, I can justify, justify myself out of just about anything. I'm good. Like, I can, I can twist those words. I trust you, God. But when it comes to my finances, do I? When it comes to my, my parenting, do I trust that God's good and right and for me? But as much as he's for me, he's for my kids. Do I trust him with their safety and security? Justifying our decisions based on what we can see and know, what makes most sense, that's halfway discipleship. Yeah. The rest of this book is going to show us that when we do something halfway, especially following Jesus, we leave the door cracked, and before long it leads to no discipleship. And we wake up and we look just like the world around us. And yet God still chooses to step in for us. So this morning, there's a clear route 
to him, a clear vision of what it means to rest in his presence. The promised land wasn't necessarily about them having all of their desires met, though that's what would occur. They'd meet with God, the presence of God, a land where God lavished his grace on them. The promised land was always about God's presence, always about his presence and his promise with his people. The Garden of Eden was never about having everything you ever wanted. Though it was all there, the best of the best, they could have whatever you want. It was always about being in the presence of our Father, Creator, God, King. So this morning, I want you to hear this. Because of Christ, family, we can have all of God. His full presence with each one of us. Like that's what we get, all of him. And in return, this is what he says. Follow me. Trust me. I'll never lead you astray. It might be a weird way to get there. It's going to be hard. There's a lot of work to do. Not to earn your salvation, but like just life is just hard. But trust me. I'll always give you what you need. And the call will always be every day. Pick up your cross and follow him. Go all in on following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that a story from thousands of years ago, we can take it and read it and it comes alive to our hearts and we can ponder it and ask questions and maybe be a bit confused but then get clarity and you invite us in to this story. And then you give us a way to actually see ourselves in this story. I don't think I'd be much different than Judah because I can look at my own life. If I'm being honest, there's a lot of half-hearted discipleship. When things are going great, man, it's easy. Praise you, Lord. But when things are tough, I'll come back to you, God. But right now, this is what's best for me. That's been a cyclical pattern in probably most of our lives. Mountaintop experiences where everything's great, valleys where it's really low. Where are you, God? We cry out. You answer us. You bring us back to you. You show us the way. We're excited. We're living. We're following you. We get complacent. We start flirting with sin. We start saying things like, man, I'll just... One of these days I'll take serious my faith and we start living in our own world and doing our own things and we start justifying. It's just a busy time, Lord. I'll come back. Then we hit rock bottom. Something happens. We cry out, God, where are you? And it's just this cyclical pattern. We're no different. But at the same time, it is very different for us because we have your Holy Spirit. Jesus was the better judge. Jesus was the better Joshua, the better Caleb, the better Moses, the better Adam. We have him. He's laid down his life for us. And the call will always be to follow him. And in that call, we can find full assurance that you are for us and with us. Promises are yes and amen. And we can, we can bank on you. We can go all in on following you. 
Help us see that this morning, Lord. Stir our hearts. Help us to ask some good questions and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.